Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians, professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We thought we would take this week without a guest to talk about the many health and healthcare topics that we think are not getting enough, nearly enough attention, but assuredly are very important. And one of those topics is the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology. This is always newsworthy, but I don't think, but I don't think that the audience or me, quite frankly, understand all the layers to this story. And I wanted to ask you about this, Harold, to start off. What, what should we all know that isn't really being covered about this? And maybe start off by just telling us about this Nobel. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not sure if this qualifies as something that hasn't gotten enough attention, but, it, you know, I can't stop talking about it. Let, <laughs> let me just say it starts with, you know, nice people can win. You know, nice people can That's win. It's a good story. It's a good story. My God, by all accounts, these are just two remarkable people. I'll start with Drew Weissman because I want to spend more time with Katie Carrico. You know, so Drew Weissman, by all accounts, is this extraordinarily nice person, generous in the lab. One of his mentees wrote a, a really nice piece for WBUR uh, a, long, a while ago when he was getting some attention and just uh, talking about how this was someone who welcomed people into the lab, was extraordinarily collaborative. And anyway, it warmed my heart to think that that this is the kind of person who wins. But even more than that, you know, his partner, you know, is someone who, again, just was someone enthralled by science who wouldn't quit. Never just quit. Just kept going, overcame yeah. so many obstacles, you know, encountered the headwinds of academia when she couldn't get a grant because her ideas maybe were just too novel, too good. Yeah. And uh, had trouble publishing and was sort of washed away in a way. And, and, and yet, in the end... They contribute so importantly to saving so many lives. I, I want to put that first. I mean, it's not that they won the Nobel, but it's what did they do to win the Nobel? They they contributed to the saving of so many lives. So I think we're well, go ahead. Howie. No, and I was going to say, like, I think a lot of people when they first see this are thinking like COVID vaccines, right? But like the COVID vaccines didn't get developed in just 10 months. The work they've done go on for decades. So there's this amazing story, right? Like she comes over, she has a lab in Hungary and they run out of money and she and her husband decide they're going to come with their two-year-old daughter to the United States. And, and you know, it's not easy then. And, and actually Hungary doesn't want you to take money out. So they've got to sort of smuggle money. I mean, there was a piece on the daily that Gina Colada was uh, sort of part of where they were, this was being described and talk about stuffing money into, you know, teddy bears so they can get, <laughs> come over with some cash. Right. And, you know, they've almost got nothing. And, and she tries like heck to, you know, find some position. She gets a position at Penn. She says, you know, her first position, she's being paid $17,000 as a, a research associate. I mean, we should pause on them. It was 1990s. Right. Put it in like, perspective. I was an intern. I was a first year resident at that time being paid more than twice that amount. That was considered a low wage at the time. So that's a tiny wage. Well, but she's making 17000 She doesn't have any sense of bitterness about it. I mean, more like we, we made it, we pushed, you know, we, we, we progressed. She meets Weissman, you know, famously, it said, you know, at a photocopier, you know, like they're just, it's a chance encounter, by the way, it should make us think about, you know, remote work versus in-person yes. work. They meet, they start talking. She's got this idea that mRNA, which is really the blueprint for proteins, it, it takes the code from the DNA and it's sort of enabling the, the uh, blueprint to be made that ultimately uh, but, it, but it's sort of like it's the input to the factory of the cell to make proteins. That's right. So and you can't you know, make MRNA, proteins until you get to that point. 
So we call it messenger RNA is mRNA, and and it's got this blueprint, and then it combines with 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 transfer RNA, which sort of brings in the amino acids. It helps construct this these proteins. And she's she's has been enthralled by by mRNA for a long time. And Drew Weissman is is trying to develop a vaccine for HIV. And you know this is a guy who who also had quite a you know remarkable history and had worked in Fauci's lab at the NIH, ends up at Penn, you know, he's a successful academic, but this is his, you know, his goal is to make an HIV vaccine. And he meets her and she's got this idea that instead of injecting proteins into people where they would develop specific immunity to something, that what if you were able to get the blueprint into people and then let their own machinery create the proteins that the body would then develop a defense to? And so what you're doing is, in, in the case of a virus, is if we can get the body to produce a small part of that, a fragment of that virus, that the body could then learn to recognize as foreign and attack and protect against, you could then put the person in a position of having a ready defense for when the real infection comes. And so this is all about getting people ready for the real infection or bolstering their infection even, uh, you know, when, if, even if the infection takes hold. So, yeah, I mean, one of the problems though, uh, was that if you inject MRNA into people, a foreign MRNA, the body attacks it as foreign. And so it never gets a chance to be the blueprint to create the protein. Right. Always sounds very simple until you actually understand. You actually do it. Yeah. And then you, what you also have to do is, you know, you need to be able to find the right blueprint, but then you need to make sure you don't have this effect. By the way, in mice, the mice got very sick. So it wasn't even just that they destroyed the mRNA, but they it was almost like they'd been infected by the mRNA. Right. So they come up with a way by observing this transfer RNA, they come up with an idea about how you could sort of modify the mRNA in very minor ways, not to disrupt the blueprint, not to disrupt the instructions, but to enable the body to see it as self, not as enemy. Right. And, and this turns out to be quite a feat that they do. But, but the thing is so outlandish, I guess, within scientific circles that actually they can't get it published in any of the top journals. And, and when they're going for grants, no one's recognizing this as pioneering work. They're maybe seeing it as a little crazy. They get it published finally in immunity, not to diminish that journal, but it's not one of the top journals. And uh, uh, and it, it kind of goes by without much notice. Actually, they try to get grants. They try to publish more papers. They have trouble. They actually built a company at that time, and no one would invest in it because they thought, you know, this was going nowhere. Right. And by about 2013, she's on the latter faculty track. Because she's having trouble, she's actually demoted. She's taken off of this track. And so she's basically being told, you know, you're not successful here, and, and we can't promote you. And then she's giving a talk in 2013, and this guy who started that bio Intech. Uh, Biotech, yep. He's thinking about this kind of stuff, and he wants to build an mRNA vaccine for influenza. And so he, on the spot, offers her a job and says, "Leave academia; they don't know what you're worth. Come work with me." And she joins the company, and uh, and then they work together on this influenza vaccine. And then when when COVID comes, bingo, they're primed in a prime position to actually pivot and then work with Pfizer to then 
help create. But I mean, this is, you know, a, a few things that just come strike me from this is one, she's an incredibly resilient person. I mean, oh my just everything she's done is defined by resilience. And she never gets negative. Like every article you read about her way before the Nobel, when they were still writing articles during the pandemic, always talked about her in a very positive way. Um, and the other thing that strikes me at this point is how many people talked about this vaccine having been rushed in 10 months. And the reality is like 30 years of hard work went into this to get to the point where we could have a vaccine that is safe and effective as we've seen. You, you know, her daughter is an Olympian rower. And, you know, I sort of thought like, must've gotten some of the yes. persistence, yes. Uh, you know, from Crazy. her mom. But um, anyway, so it's a fascinating story of persistence, like you said, of resilience, persistence, and and continued obstacles. Some of them imposed by the way in which our academic centers work, you know. And uh, and it's a nice story about the the coordination between academic institutions and private companies. Ultimately, even though that might not be emphasized in the announcement of the Nobel, uh, it clearly played a role. I'll tell you, she's. She's going to inspire me for a long time. Yeah. I, I, I rarely run into something like this. So what's next, Ty? What is, what's on your mind? What do you want to flip yeah, to next? There's so, lots of stuff out there. Yeah, there is a lot of stuff. And about, I don't know, I think six or seven months ago, we reported on two separate lawsuits that were pending from the Department of Justice, you know, accusing Cigna of wrong wrongdoing uh, re regarding Medicare Advantage plans. And Medicare Advantage plans are private health insurance plans that Medicare pays for. And right now, the majority of Medicare beneficiaries get their health insurance through these Medicare Advantage plans, not through Medicare itself anymore. So it was alleged that Cigna was essentially overbilling for Medicare Advantage patients by making them seem sicker than they might have actually been. And they did this two different ways. One, they had individuals reviewing charts to see if real diseases that patients had, that really they really had, but were not being coded for, could be coded for so they could get paid more money. That's not a bad thing. That's, that's actually a reasonable uh, you know, thing to do for your business. But during the same review, they also discovered that some people were being coded for diseases that they didn't have, right? You go in the chart, it says the patient has diabetes and you go through the entire chart and you can't find a single thing that would support having diabetes. So they corrected for the first error because it got them more money. But even though they identified the second error, they did not tell anybody about it because they would have lost money on, on that. And for what it's worth, Morbid obesity was one of the diseases that Cigna was coding for in patients that were not documented. In other words, patients were not morbidly obese, but were being coded for morbid obesity. So, and then second, the second way Cigna did this is they sent healthcare providers into homes of patients to see if they could rapidly identify additional diseases or risk factors, similar to the first part, but this time you're sending people into people's homes to talk to them, maybe even examine them. It sounds well-meaning, but the investigators found that this was much more about increasing revenue than about improving health. So, you know, Quick summary about this, Cigna settled for a whopping $172 million and the whistleblower himself received $8 million from that settlement. So 
you know, I, I want to first start with you because you, a lot of your career has been about understanding how we risk adjust populations and how we can use that to make sure that we properly pay for things that, you know, if you give me two separate groups of 100 people, that I might know that one group is going to be more expensive to treat than the other, but how do we do that? And I want to hear from you first about how, what is the state of the art in risk adjustment right now? Well, well let me just take one. First of all, let me just say one thing. We don't say morbid obesity anymore. You know that? I, it, was in the, it was in the document, so I didn't know that. Yeah, what I do know. we call it now? No, I, I think some people, like even the code still maybe say morbid obesity. So what do we the call idea, it? But, well, like class three obesity. Oh, and, interesting. You know, we're, we're, Did not we're know that. To make them, because the idea is that it feels judgmental. I, I, but I agree with you. I think the codes still maintain these kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, rules. I use that term routinely. I mean, I, I always thought morbid obesity distinguishes it from non-clinical obesity. So. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, you know, Anya Yastrobov keeps teaching me about this because yeah, I said the same thing. Yeah. So look, uh, as an outcomes guy, I just want to look at the outcomes. And, and maybe you can give me a reality check about this. I thought the premise of Medicare Advantage was that if we take the about the same amount of money that a group of people would be spending in in uh, traditional Medicare and gave it to you, and then you managed their care, you right. promoted prevention, you you did disease management. So when they needed nurses or they needed this or that, you know that you would be able to improve health and cut utilization, right? Because you were actively managing a population and you were at risk for that population. And then Medicare put a little sweetener in there saying you know, in, in order to do that, we're going to, you know, make this a little more economically attractive because we're trying to get, get people to want to, to do these plans and not to feel like they potentially are going to be at risk. Is, is that true? It's roughly true. So, you know, in the Clinton administration, they actually paid a little less than the average cost because they figured that these plans were going to attract healthier than average people. With the Bush administration in 2003, they did what you said. And the goal was like, bring these people into the market. Let's get a critical mass. Let's overpay for it for a while just to build it up. And then let's get to competitive pricing. But for our audience, competitive pricing is easier said than done. Because like, if I pick a million people at random, then maybe the pricing is easy. But when I get to sign people up, I might be particularly good at finding healthier than average people. And then I don't deserve the average payment for a million people. So then again, I'm going to get to the risk adjustment in a minute, but, but just before I get there, then I start seeing reports that come out like this one from the USC Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics that said the Medicare Advantage overpayments may have exceeded $75 billion. Yeah in 2023 due to this sort of favorable selection. So even before we get to risk adjustment, I mean, it seems like where I thought all we have almost, by the way, more than half of Medicare enrollees are now in Medicare Advantage. Exactly. Plans. I thought they were going to help us with costs. It actually, these reports are coming out that are saying that, no, no, these people are costing a lot more. Yeah. So let me, let me tell you that, you know, Humana and Cigna are probably two of the companies that are most dedicated to Medicare Advantage. They do a lot of other plans, but Medicare Advantage is dis disproportionately large for their business. Do you know that, that Humana is up 25-fold, 2,400% since the passage of the act we just talked about in 2003? What do you mean they're up 2,400%? What's up? The stock. The stock, the stock is 2,400%. And Cigna is up 15-fold or 1,400% in the same interval. Now, as a reference point, 
What is the average stock up in that point? 200%. So like the companies in this business, as you just said, have become enormously profitable, probably mostly due to Medicare Advantage plans. Hmm. And so to me, that suggests that that the the calculations we're making in order to determine what represents fair payments are not exactly working. And it doesn't surprise me because these are sort of antiquated formulas using crude descriptors of people based on uh, billing data, largely. And, you know, there are many more sophisticated ways to assess risk if we wanted to employ them. Now, if I'm these companies, I'm probably going to hire a lot of lobbyists to try to maintain the status quo, because it seems like in the status quo, you know, it's ending up to provide, you know, huge margins. And so, uh, yeah, this is what concerns me. I, I think actually our group should we should be digging into this a little bit more. I, I think this is a very important topic. Now, I will say in, on a positive note, you've you had three separate district attorneys, one in Tennessee, one in Pennsylvania, and I think one in New York that work collaboratively to both investigate and prosecute this and come to a settlement with Cigna. Uh, on the flip side of it, though, is there are many pending lawsuits on the same topic right now, and Medicare Advantage companies, including Kaiser, are suing the government, saying that state, keep your nose out of our books, basically. Like, well, we well, let, Let's differentiate these two points, too. One is playing by the game, does the game fairly compensate them for the people that they're covering. So is there something wrong with the equations? Not not counting gaming the system. And then the second part of it is, are people gaming the system on top of the advantage that the equation's giving them? And again, just to get back to this, the equation's trying to say, how sick are the people that you're covering? We want to, uh, your payment should be tagged to the severity of illness, the, the risks of the people that you're covering. If it's underestimating or, or overestimating the risk, you're getting overpaid because it's basically saying we expect you to be spending a certain amount of money on right. these people. Right. And it doesn't work out that way. And then on top of that, some of these companies, this is what the signals, by the way, how you say 170 million being a big deal, that's chump change to them. It is, but it's still it, that they got a settlement out of it and, and basically admitted it. Cost of doing business. Yeah, that's how they'll see it. Business. I know. I mean, you know, just expense it out. And 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 so if you're if you're allowed to, and and this light hand slap. On the billions of dollars that are moving, you're paying 170, and you're mostly being able to upcode. And th then I think they could fairly ask, "Well, we're just more accurately characterizing our patients." So there's a you know there's a back and forth about this, but but I would say the system's not working yeah. if largely right. we're we're ending up paying a lot more for the people who make care. And I'll say one last thing is, as more people have gone into Medicare Advantage. We have not seen life expectancy, you know. No, exactly. Up, no, right. There, so, there's no evidence that I see right now that Medicare Advantage has been successful. Now we pay more for it, and so there are there is great satisfaction among the patients. Satisfaction, not necessarily well, because they get dental and gym exactly, and they, exactly. That's they get what extra it is. benefits, right? Yeah. Yep. But, but whether that's translating to better health, lower utilization. Yeah. And I know, you know, our friend Jason Abelock and, and uh, others, uh, I'm working some with them, you know, are dig digging into this. Maybe we'll have him back on the show. That'd and be great. That'd it. be great. Yeah. So so there was another paper that came out. I think I think it actually first got published a few weeks ago, but hit the press more recently. It's in the Journal of Medicine now, I believe, on 
using a particular statin drug to treat patients with HIV in order to treat them for just cardiovascular risk factors. And I'm aware of the fact that HIV increases your risk of cardiovascular risk beyond what would be expected. Uh, and apparently there's been some concern about some statins having some conflict with the HIV medications that they're on. And so, so why is this paper important and why is it like sort of almost shockingly like, so what? Well, look, first of all, anytime we come up with a medication that can reduce risk for a group, uh, you know, in, in a very substantial way, 35% reduction in cardiovascular risk, you know, we should applaud. The first, my always, my first uh, emotion about a paper like this is just to reflect back when I was in residency when we had nothing to treat people with. Yeah. People were just dying, yep. terrible deaths, uh, and, and it was just so tragic and sad. And you know, that we fully converted this to a chronic condition. Seems that way. And that, that now we're talking about how do we manage the cardiovascular risk within a group of people uh, who are uh, living with HIV disease. Is that, I, I know we know that, but yep. it's, still re it's still remarkable to me about what kind of no progress question. we've made. The, the issue about this study to me is, you know, this is a group of people, they, they randomized 7,800 people with HIV infection and low to moderate risk of cardiovascular disease who are receiving antiretroviral therapy. And, and we've known for a long time that people who have this kind of therapy, actually everything else considered, they have it elevates their cardiovascular risk. So basically, you know, this is a worthy population to see whether we can lower their, their risk. Even if they don't have all the traditional risk factors, they have higher risk. And, and some of that's thought to be related to the inflammation, maybe some of it related to the treatments. There's lots of stuff here. So but, but I think what's interesting to me is I, for a long time, have felt that these statin drugs are not just about lowering cholesterol, but about lowering risk. And you can give them to almost anyone and you will lower their risk. I mean, if you look at all the studies, no matter what your starting cholesterol was, you can lower risk by about 20%. Maybe with high intensity statins or more, you can lower maybe 30, 35%, like what you saw in this study. And so this to me is validation of the idea that the, the statins are not necessarily about chasing a cholesterol level or getting to a target, but if you've got someone with elevated risk, you can give them a statin and you can cut that risk. And so the findings here weren't surprising to me at all. I guess you could say the only thing that they wanted to check was that the principal mediator they thought might be inflammation. And the question is for that kind of cardiovascular disease mechanism, would statins be effective? But, but so far I've seen statins, any population you try them in, they lower risk. And so, you know, I, I like the study both. It acknowledges the chronicity of HIV disease, which is a triumph. It, it, it's a positive trial, which means we can help people even more uh, avoid these cardiovascular complications. But I like it because it's also validation this idea about thinking about cholesterol, not as a cholesterol-lowering drug. It does lower cholesterol, and that's probably the principal mechanism by which it works. But it's a risk reducer. So basically, we should be finding everybody who's got elevated risk should be on these drugs, not not trying to find the right threshold of cholesterol or not trying to chase it to a certain level, but just recognizing these drugs risk reduce. It's also a nice acknowledgement. I think if we think back over a year when we had Amy Justice on the show, just about how you have these large groups of researchers that are doing mammoth studies on these populations and yielding real results. Um, I thought, you know, to me, this was a very intense effort by a lot of people to, to come up with a very important answer to a question that we hadn't answered.
Yep. I heard you were in a meeting yesterday, Harlan. Tell me, oh, Datavance, what is that? Well, <laughs> I went down to DC. There's a company called Datavant, which is actually helping to bring together data from different groups. Most of the meeting was about cognoscenti of, of the data universe in healthcare. You know, people who are looking at this from various different angles. And, and then there were folks from the government there. Uh, Rob Califf came, commissioner of the FDA. People were there from, uh, you know, various different segments of the healthcare universe. I, you know, my take home still is that, that there is progress being made, but like, my gosh, we still have this digital transformation. We, all of our data sits in digital and we're still not really able to exploit the digital nature of healthcare data in ways that are truly and fundamentally improving research and clinical care. And, and what was nice was you had a bunch of people there who've been thinking hard about how you get to the promised land of, of really doing that. But it, it just, it, it remains so interesting how between regulatory obstacles, privacy issues, how much do you think, so I've always felt like the privacy issues are a particularly big issue, even even when you can assure people that their data is their data, they control it and all that. I still feel like people are worried about health data in a way that they don't worry about other things. How much do you think privacy does concern people? Well, I think people have to comply with the federal guidance, but as I've talked to you about this before, a lot of these companies are moving around data that patients have no idea about now. And, and so some of the solutions people are trying to come up with this idea of tokenization, where basically you're what they're saying, you're sort of hashing or, or obscuring or, or it's sort of encrypting the information about the individuals. The problem is, you know, if I take away all of your identifiers, but I've got your medical care history, most people could figure out who you are Absolutely. You know, with a lot of other data. So, you know, it's a it's this idea of like, how do we on one hand unlock the value of the data for society and patients and for companies? And on the other hand, ensure that we're not releasing information that people would be shocked right. to find out that released. There's another side of it where you actually get and try to get overt consent from people. And like you said, Howie, some people get very concerned about giving that consent. But, you know, I've talked to you about this story of like these pop up. COVID testing groups in New York City, if you got your test on that corner, then they were they were able to say that they were your caregiver and, and, and being able to go out and get your all data. Your information. It's horrible. And then they could yep. actually then commercialize that information, the combination of your testing and, and the data. So that's still, I think, a bit of a of a mess. But but let me say there are a lot of people work, trying to work on this problem and and uh, from various different directions. So I left the meeting feeling you know, optimistic that we will ultimately solve some of these problems, but but still concerned that we're locked in a in an analog world in healthcare largely. We're not really able to use data in the way ways that could ensure that the very next person that comes in uh, is advantaged by all that we've learned by everyone before them. You know, and that that we're really capable of informing their choices in, in meaningful ways based on rapid, agile analytics of real world existing data. And to your, to your credit, again, going back over 15 years, you've had conversations with me where you've talked about, like, how do we get to a continuously learning healthcare system that is iterative, that takes account of the data that already exists to help inform future? And I think back to that, like, when you said that to me, I knew it was ahead of the curve, but I did not think it was going to be decades before we saw that. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure we're getting there fast enough. 
It's still the promised land. Yeah. I, like I said, I remain optimistic, but medicine's an information science now. And to fully, fully assume that, that mantle and be able to achieve the promise of that, we got to solve this issue about the data. We got to solve it. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, I'm going to recommend that you reach out to us at health.veritas at yale.edu. That's health.veritas at yale.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. Or X or whatever it yeah. is. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. I'm still there. H-M-K-E-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Aside from Twitter or X and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via the email I just left you uh, for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash E-M-B-A. And we're also increasingly using LinkedIn and we're thinking about threads and yeah. we're wondering about Instagram. Yeah. And if you've got suggestions for us, let us we know. We want to hear from you. Yeah. Health and Veritas is produced at the Yale School of Management and Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are great and we're lucky to have them. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Arnold. Talk to you soon. <laughs>